becoming simply a technician. There's no feeling, there's no drama, there's no passion. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bot? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy a song. It's about time in a film nothing happened. What a brave choice a director made. What a, what a pioneer this guy is. Let's do nothing. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft, and work hard. Movies. Mm -hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies. Okay. Pick this up. Control sound. Roll camera. Speed. Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker's and film lover's perspective. I'm Joe. And my name's Justin. On this episode, we'll be discussing Christoph Kieślowski's Three Colors Blue. Our discussion will be spoiler heavy, and you may find this discussion more engaging if you've seen the film before listening. So before we get into the episode, though, I want to thank our listeners for coming back. Or if you're just finding us for the first time, welcome. We're excited to, to be back talking about films that we love or films that we haven't seen and hope to love. But you know, when it comes to Blue, this is actually one of my favorite films. I think that it is a near-perfect film. Yeah, there's flaws. There's certain things that, upon revisiting it, um, maybe didn't work for me as well this time around. But this is still great. This is still, like, peak filmmaking to me. I'm excited to get in and, and really talk about this one with you. Yeah, I'm excited, too. I feel like uh, maybe a little bit ill-prepared for this because there's certainly a lot technically that we could dive into and I, I don't know if I'm entirely prepared to do that. Also, I mean, there's a lot going on uh, thematically. Is certainly the film intentionally is kind of cryptic with certain elements and invites people to make their own interpretations and obviously that's a, a positive of the film. But I'll, I'll just be honest with you, there are certain elements that I don't know if I have a good interpretation for depending on if you have some interpretation for them, maybe we're not prepared. I don't know. I do think that this is probably going to be a challenging one for us to actually talk about and discuss. When it comes to films like this, I, I think it can be kind of a struggle because there's so much here with this film. There's so much to unpack. I have a very deeply personal feeling towards it, and I don't know that we're going to necessarily be able to completely do it justice. It's one of those things that clearly there's always the benefit of hindsight. And I think about some of the films that we have covered on this podcast previously, and it's just like, did we really do After Sun Justice? You know, some of these films, did we do enough to kind of, I don't necessarily want to say honor them, but, you know, did we show them the respect that they deserve? This month, between blue, white, and red, that is something that I'm, I kind of question and I wrestle with. But only one thing to do, and that's get to it and let's see how we do. At least try. At right? least try, right. I think the thing that stands out to me is, you know, and I'll just speak for blue specifically, is I do think this film transcends film or, or cinema in a way. And I know there's probably people out there who think that is pretentious, right, Joe? But this is like poetry in a way rather than storytelling and, and even film as art. 
just because Kishlowski captures something that is not captured that often on film. And you can disagree with that. Obviously, that's my opinion. But if that's the case, then it's like, how do you talk about that? How do you communicate that? Because that's going to be something that's very personal and unique to each viewer. Part of that is my fear is that I won't really be able to articulate what I like about it and, and what sort of speaks to me. But yeah, we'll try. Justin, talk a little bit about your history with Blue. Probably... Uh, like my freshman or sophomore year of college. It was on a, a viewing list that was provided by one of my film professors. This and Red were on that list. So I, I would have seen Blue and Red, and I didn't see White immediately. I saw White a couple years later, probably when Criterion released the trilogy Blu-ray set is probably when I saw White for the first time. Yeah, I saw this kind of when I was starting to get into foreign cinema. And I think this is one of kind of like the big ones, some of the hallmarks of European cinema. I mean, I and I liked Blue and Red at the time. Obviously, we've talked about the, on this podcast before that I've always preferred Red. And I'm curious if that's going to be the same after this viewing. What is your experience with Blue? Similar to you, this was sort of my first foray into European cinema. I had really been focused on Asian cinema, so this was kind of an instance of of me sort of exploring a little bit. Blue was the first of the Three Colors trilogy that I had seen, and I recall being absolutely blown away by it. I'm happy to say that unlike other films that you know I've seen and that we've discussed, I think I actually found more this time than I previously had. And, and I think that this one just connected with me and it hit me a little bit harder this time around. I was really happy about that because, you know, when we go into this, there's always that concern of, well, is this the same film or am I still seeing things the same way? And actually, like, kind of to back up a little bit, I believe that this box set was a blind buy for me, the Criterion box set. I, I think I may have gotten into it a little bit later than you had. So I purchased that box set, watched Blue. I did follow it up with White. So I, I have seen White. But, and one of the reasons why I wanted us to do this trilogy, I have yet to see Red. So Red is going to be that film that I haven't experienced at all. People tell me Red is the best. I've heard it from several people. I know people love Red. I think for me, it's it's going to be really tough to outdo Blue. Yeah. And then there's White. There's, I think, been a history of dismissing White. I don't think that's entirely fair, although it is the one I connect with the least. So Joe, since this was your pick, technically. I like to think that it was a, <laughs> you know, we looked at the calendar, we said there would be three releases of our podcast in the month of March. Let's go ahead and do three colors. I, I think that's how that conversation went. Yes, that is true. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, I picked the last episode, which was Christmas again. So I think by default, this is considered your selection. And therefore, you should try to summarize this film before we begin talking about it. Zelto. Maintenant. 
dans le temps, peut-être plus léger, sans les percussions. Si on retire les trompettes... On reprend là. Juliette Binoche plays Julie, who very early on in the film, her husband and daughter are killed in a car accident. And Julie kind of tries to live this life without any connection. Basically, the Three Colors trilogy, each color representing a color of the French flag, each color having a representative meaning, blue standing for liberty. And the film focuses sort of on Julie's liberty. And it's not necessarily like a political liberty, but a personal liberty. So living without connection, basically living without a history almost. Although as the film progresses, it becomes increasingly clear that she can't live this life of solitude without connection. Additionally, as much as she tries to live without that past, that past just continues to to haunt her. There's a, a few additional things that are kind of happening within the film. Julie's relationship to Olivier basically worked with Julie's deceased husband, Patrice. Patrice was a composer. The film alludes to the fact that Julie was maybe more involved with his compositions than, you know, maybe the world was led to believe. The film ultimately kind of culminates in Julie discovering that Patrice was having an affair. His lover is pregnant with his child. Justin, what did I miss? You know, Julie has a series of interactions with people throughout the film. And I think ultimately they're just sort of at the service of Julie in the end. I think it's about this this woman resisting making connections. And at a certain point, these people, I guess, collectively break down that barrier, break down that wall and kind of somewhat make an impact on her. And Kishlovsky, you know, chose someone who was, you know, financially well off, someone who could not have a job, who could just hang out, go to a coffee shop. And this being a way of giving the impression that they're free, they're free to do whatever they want. They have nothing sort of tying them down. And that's sort of what Julie is in this film. So she spends a lot of time not really doing anything and that's intentional. And then she just has these interactions with uh, various people along the way. And that's essentially what the film is. And that's, I think, why some people maybe have a hard time connecting with it, because there isn't necessarily a lot going on. But I think that's what is so compelling about it as well for us, people like us who like this type of thing. Maybe what turns people off to this film a little bit is you don't have that external conflict per se. It is 
Julie wrestling with this new life and whether you agree or disagree that the pain of the loss is truly on display or enough, there is that loss and she's navigating that and using this as a way of living a life of her own for her. With that said, I mean, and I, and I guess it's kind of the philosophical question here of the theme of the film is liberty and Julie's self-liberty, but is that truly possible when those memories exist? And I, I, I think that's kind of an interesting storytelling item that this film does. The only human interaction that Julie seeks out after the her daughter and husband are killed is the interactions with her mother, who has Alzheimer's. So there is still this kind of element of she's still like connecting to this person but this person who is likely going to forget about her or can't even recognize her the other interactions are just really happenstance well and i think that's why she continues to go back to her mother is because she can spend the afternoon with her but she can't ever truly connect with her because her mother is incapable of remembering who she is and so I think that is actually appealing to Julie in this situation. And I think it's an interesting parallel as well that Julie's mother is this woman who's forgotten her daughter and Julie herself is doing everything in her power to forget her daughter. And I think there's a lot of that sort of mirroring that happens throughout the entire film. I do want to maybe back up just a bit. Let's talk a little bit about this series of films, this trilogy, you had briefly talked about it during your synopsis. The idea to tackle liberty, equality, fraternity was Christoph Pisevich's idea. Pisevich is the co-screenwriter, a close Kieślowski collaborator, someone who's worked with him many times. Pisevich was also the person who came up with the idea for the Decalogue. And I think this is very closely related to the Decalogue or is like a continuation of what they were doing with the Decalogue. You know, the way the Decalogue was in theory tackling the Ten Commandments, but it wasn't doing so in the safe, predictable, expected way. I think of the thou shall not steal episode. You can imagine it's about someone who steals someone's car or steals someone's money and you see the consequences of that. That would be the obvious way to depict that. But they tackle this idea of this woman essentially kidnapping her own daughter who has been raised as her sister. And then it becomes this idea of, you know, can you steal something that I guess in a way kind of belongs to you already? And they're making it personal, making it about people and not some sort of philosophical or political idea. And I think that's what they do here. The idea of liberty, the idea of freedom could have been tackled in a political way, but they made it about a very personal story for this for this woman. This is from an interview with Kieślowski, and it's featured in Kieślowski on Kieślowski, the book. It's also included in the Criterion booklet. There was a specific part of the quote that I wanted to read because I thought it was an interesting way of thinking about the film. So he says, Love is a beautiful emotion, but in loving, you immediately make yourself dependent on the person you love. You do what they like, although you might not like it yourself, because you want to make them happy. So while having these beautiful feelings of love and having a person you love, you start doing a lot of things that go against your own grain. That's how we've understood freedom in these three films on the personal level. 
I think I've expressed on this podcast quite frequently, I'm not really fond of idea-driven films, but why this film works so well is because it's grounded in the human, in the personal, rather than this sort of big philosophical question. And then this idea of the French flag and, and each film having its own central ideal rooted in the French flag or, you know, the ideals of the French Revolution. I think it's interesting that Kieślowski has kind of pointed out that it's not that important. I'm going to read two quotes about this. He said, I now have a moral duty not to make films at home. 200 directors are competing for scant resources, and I'm in a position to look elsewhere. The important question is not where you set up your camera, but why. And then relating back to the French flag, he said, if a different country had provided the finance, Germany for instance, and I had made it as a German film, then yellow would have taken the place of blue, and one would have had yellow, red, and black. It really is not important. As much as I think it's interesting to look at these films through that lens, I think if you try to force it or you, um, you're maybe too critical of that or make too big of a deal of that, you're kind of losing what the film is really about. The way that Kieslowski and Pisevich approach Decalogue and Three Colors, I mean, it is not the conventional way that you would tell a Ten Commandments story, or an alternate version of this is very much more like political and more overt meanings to like each of the colors that make up this trilogy, and maybe we're treated to something less personal. And I think that's actually something that I, I appreciate about blue to a lesser extent, white, jury still out on red, but they they are very rooted in humanity. Yeah, and I think it, it comes from a couple different things. I think Kishlowski cared about people. I think that's evident. And also, he specifically didn't want to be political. I think he resisted the political label, and he never really considered himself a political filmmaker, although that's not entirely true, and it's not entirely that simple. I think there's an element of like, the everyday that is inherently political, especially when you're exploring real people. The real people of Poland, as an example, the people that are affected by the government. So I think it happens, but he was very adamant that he did not want to be a political filmmaker and make a political film. And then also on top of that, I think he was a very humanistic, very compassionate person. And I think this is the type of film you get as the result of that. I know I kind of derailed us getting into some of the themes of liberty, freedom. Is it achievable, attainable? Does it matter? What about this film on a story level, or maybe even a thematic level, speaks to you, Joe? Kind of looking back at my experience with it the first time, and again, acknowledging that it's a film that has grown and changed, and what I'm taking away from it now is different than what I took away from it when I first saw it. During my initial watch of it, it was rooted in the loss element. I thought it was a very compelling and interesting look at the fallout of Julie losing her family and the grief that she was carrying with her. And again, you know, as time has gone on, as I've explored film more and I've started to look at film in different ways, a different layer of this film has opened up to me that I've been able to kind of relate to and connect with. And, and that's the element of trying to 
live without those connections. And I, I think there's an argument to be made of if she's truly trying to live without connection, if that's truly what's happening, or if she is still being pulled back in by this just like human nature. As a human, we we need connection with other humans. There's a lot here where if Julie was trying to truly live without connection, she very easily could. Julie has a lot of control over truly being able to disconnect from these individuals that that she interacts with, but she doesn't. She still continues to have these interactions. Olivier, for example, it would be very easy for her to just completely divorce herself of any contact, even when he comes to see her in the cafe. Followed up with the man who has her necklace. She had the cross necklace that had like fallen off some point during the accident and he had it. So their interaction stems from basically a call at a doctor's office. Vous avez le moral? Oui. Julie could very easily not respond or not go to that meeting. The interactions with Lucille, the sex worker, Julie chose not to sign a petition to have her removed from the apartment because it was none of her business. But by not signing it, it opens up this interaction with Lucille. And even then, Lucille becomes, I would say, a person of significant interaction with Julie as the film progresses. So you have all these instances instances where Julie continues to be drawn back to other individuals, even though she's trying to live this life of solitude. But I feel like there's an element to this that Julie still has control of, and there's still an element of decision-making that she's choosing to have these interactions. As I sit down and I think about Blue and I explore this film, there's this very interesting character. There's this very interesting person who is almost at odds with herself, who is trying to do this thing, but human nature is preventing it. I agree. I, you know, she, she's trying to live this life of isolation, let's say. And I think she's finding at moments that she wants to reach out to these people or she wants to connect with these people. And despite the fact that she believes she doesn't want that, she finds that she does actually want that. There's also this element that she finds that she needs it on the sort of surface level. Julie seems like someone who is self-reliant and independent and certainly financially secure. You know, she doesn't need anybody's help. But then there's moments where, you know, the issue with the mice, where she needs to borrow someone else's cat to kill the mice. And then she needs to rely on Lucille to clean up the mice or the mess or whatever. You know, and, and even moments where she goes back to Olivier, it's almost like she goes back to him because she wants to find out who the mistress was. She's not going back for him. She's going back because she wants something from him in a way. There's moments where she maybe is reaching out because she craves that or she wants that. But I also think there's moments where she's finding that she needs other people. She has to rely on other people for help. 
even when she herself doesn't think she needs help from anyone. Or if we relate this back to freedom, we need or we want these human connections, but we might have to sacrifice some freedom in order to have them. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's okay. And we just need to accept that kind of thing. I think that that kind of ties into like another element of this film that I find very compelling. And again, like going back to the theme of like liberty and tying it to the human interaction piece, Julie's not capable of, of achieving this. As much as she's trying to live this freedom, the existence of the past and those memories continue to pull her back. I think it's abundantly clear as she's sitting in the cafe and every time there is the street musician playing the flute. how that continues to just like pull her back into like those memories and pull her back into that history that she has you know ultimately it leads to like a, an actual like conversation with him but also i think it's kind of great because it's demonstrating this inability to truly be free and to truly have that liberty I mean, the film grounds this idea of freedom or liberty very much in the personal life of Julie. But at the same time, it, it can mean many different things. Like the quote from Kieślowski where he talks about love. You're doing these things for someone else and you are giving up a, a level of freedom because of that. That maybe is an element. You know, she's giving up certain levels of freedom to form these new relationships. But then there is also freedom from emotions or freedom from memories that are, in this case, tied to very painful emotions, right? The memories of her deceased family are very painful, and she tries to completely eliminate all of that, everything that is a reminder to be free of those. And then it's like, well, can you really be free of these things? And I think those are the two that speak to me the most, but I think there's probably more ways of what is she free of? What is she trying to be free from? Is it possible? I find it kind of fascinating as well that even though the mother is suffering from Alzheimer's, there's still a lack of freedom there because the mother does kind of go back and focus on her sister. And even though she's in a state where she may not recognize Julie, the mother's still not like free of these burdens of thought and memory. Yeah, and she's also not free in other ways. Oh, yeah. You know, she's still beholden to the fact that she has no long-term memories, you know, and that has its own consequences. In a way, like, no matter what your situation is, you're always being trapped or confined by something. It could be any number of things. For her, it could be her illness, or it could be the memories she does have. If we're going back to this idea of her trying to be free of the memory of her family and be free of the the sadness, the grief that is associated with that. One of the things that I like the best is the way that can just hit her randomly with almost no obvious motivation. And I'm sure there's interpretations that differ from mine, but I, I tend to view the music as a representation of the memory of her husband. And I tend to view the color blue as a representation of the memory of her daughter. And I think the moments where that music just sort of comes out of nowhere. Or that blue light 
on her face comes out of nowhere and it's unmotivated. It's unexpected. The way I view it, Julie thought she was fine. She had, I guess, achieved what she was attempting to do. And then just like that, a memory of her husband hits her or a memory of her daughter hits her. It kind of comes out of nowhere. And that's represented through the music, through the, the blue light. Now, I acknowledge the music and the blue light have multiple meanings in the film. And I think that's problematic for some viewers as well. But I also think it's what is potentially interesting about the film is that a single element can have multiple meanings or multiple interpretations and multiple meanings even within one interpretation. The music can represent her husband, but it can also represent this idea of unification rather than isolation. The reason I think I relate to that this time is because as someone who isn't necessarily thinking about a family member you've lost and then something very simple will remind you of them and then a flood of memories or emotions will just hit you out of nowhere. That's something I'm going through right now with my dad who passed away recently. And then I saw that in this film and it, it made me, um, I don't know if that's how I always viewed those elements, but it made me view them that way now and it made them more powerful now. Joe, let me ask you, I mean, do you have your interpretation of just broadly speaking, these moments where the music sort of just hits her or she's gets this play of blue light on her face. Do you have an interpretation of what that means? I don't believe it's one thing. I, I think that there's a number of things kind of going on with it where it is like you kind of highlighted, it's these memories coming back or this is kind of that depiction of grief. I also see it as the question of Julie being a part of... Patrice's composition and this is her kind of continuing to to work through the composition and and I, I'm sure we'll kind of talk about this as we get further into it. I tend to lean on the side of like the the memories and the emotions overcoming her. but again, I think it's actually kind of hard to quantify this because it is so much. I kind of said this earlier, I think sometimes we expect an element of a film to represent just one thing. And, you know, maybe even I've expressed that in the past. I, I don't know. I'm trying to think back to like an episode like Synecdoche, New York. You know, did I at any point say something like, you know, this element means just this one thing and, and it has to mean just this one thing. And, and I don't know, maybe I did. But I think here is a film I have my interpretation of what the blue light that dances across Juliette Binoche's face means. I have my interpretation, but I can also acknowledge that the color blue and blue light mean more than just my interpretation. It's about so much more than that. And it's about so much more than I think can even be put into words at times. Like I said earlier, there are elements of this film that I don't necessarily have a great interpretation of, but I have a strong belief that they mean something. And the answer to the mystery is being left up to the viewer to discover it and find it on their own and, and make their own interpretations. And sometimes it's something that is more a feeling than anything else. So I, I kind of want to pose the 
question because it came up on the IMDb trivia. There's this character that shows up basically for two scenes. It's this reporter who is kind of like questioning the completion of this piece of music that Julie's husband was writing. And one of the interactions between Julie and this reporter was the reporter asking Julie if it's true that she had written the music for Patrice. In a film that is, I would say that there's like a subtle nature to a lot of things that are happening. I felt like this was one of the most overt and kind of more in-your-face elements of the film, because what we see afterwards is really like in line with Julie being more proficient when it comes to the music composition and the writing of the music. So even the film kind of kind of pushes forward this idea a little bit, I think, of, you know, maybe Patrice wasn't always the primary author and maybe Julie was a greater factor into that. And maybe people don't care about this, but, you know, it's one of those things that I just kind of found interesting as far as in a film that is about kind of wrestling with all of these different things, there's this somewhat unexplored element of credit to an artist and the recognition. There's another interaction later on where Julie goes to collect the copy of the music. The woman she's collecting it from makes a comment, there's lots of corrections, and Julie's response is no more than usual. The way that Julia Binoche delivers that line, there's almost like a bit of defensiveness in the tone, kind of giving like further implication that maybe some of these corrections were actually belonging to her. Justin, any thoughts on that? In terms of how I read the actual events, the way I interpret it is that Patrice was writing the music and Julie was offering corrections or changes or suggestions. Like you just said, the no more than usual kind of defensiveness and also just the fact that she says that and is aware of that is telling us that you know she's responsible for those corrections. So I think it is like a collaboration. And then there's also the moment where at a certain point, Olivier and Julie start working together to finish the composition. And then he calls her up and he's like, I'm going to do it on my own. And I don't remember what the exact words are, but he basically says it might be a little bit clunkier. It's not going to be as good, but it'll be truly mine. And I think that's Olivier making a distinction between you know what he wants and, and who he is versus who Patrice was. I think Patrice was certainly writing the music, but he was relying on Julie to make it better. That's how I view the events. Now, what does that mean? There is certainly an element of collaboration, but also Julie's not getting any of the credit for it. Kishlowski is definitely a very collaborative filmmaker, relying on his group of uh, collaborators and you know certainly taking their input very seriously. Pretty much everybody around him says that he kind of listened to everyone's input and suggestions and actually valued other people's thoughts on his work. But it's interesting that we as a film community, critics or people who discuss films, we give all the credit to the director, the person that we've come to view as the author, in this case, Kishlowski. So is he commenting on something like that? Talking about whether it's heavy-handed maybe that's my interpretation of the way you were expressing it kind of obvious the way the reporter was yeah i think the the reporter's approach kind of made it feel more on the nose than yeah maybe i anything think anything else in the film i think what's interesting though is we don't necessarily 
it doesn't spell it out to us. It doesn't necessarily give us concrete answers to what that working relationship was like. And it actually never even really mentions it again. She asks the question, but it's not like it's it's an element of the story yeah, that it, reoccurs. I, I don't know that it matters a ton, but I, I also feel like, you know, in a film that is focused on moving on from the past to a degree, there is this element of, well, this was part of her past. I guess I kind of question a little bit more of like, maybe her involvement was more or greater than the corrections because of just how in tune she is in the in those later scenes and how she's, by the end, it's like she's the one that's like writing it and finishing it herself. But again, I, I think that's just used to kind of demonstrate how she hasn't been able to move past that part of her life completely. Yeah, and I think that the the music is, apart from, I think, representing the memory of Patrice, it is this element of connection to other people. It's this element of accepting reality it, it's this element of you know allowing yourself to grieve because she immediately picks up the sheet music and then she immediately throws it in the garbage truck she destroys it she wants to completely pretend like that never existed and then when she finally agrees to finish it or agrees to work on it that's as she's beginning to realize that this way of life that she's tried to implement is not possible. And then when it's finally complete, it's this moment where, you know, she's finally kind of accepted that these people are gone and also accepted that she can't completely remove them from her life. And then that's the moment when she finally starts to to grieve is when that music is complete. So the rejection of the music and then agreeing to work on it and then the completion of the music, I think also represents her journey from trying to repress all these feelings to finally embracing them and then finally allowing herself to accept and grieve. And I think that like one of the things I kind of struggle with the idea of her cutting ties with the past and everything is the blue mobile from her daughter's room. And I think that's just another one of those items that kind of how I mentioned earlier, the not being able to truly disconnect from others. You know, you interpreted the blue color, the blue light color, along with the music, like the representation of her being kind of like haunted or those memories coming back. I kind of feel like that mobile is just another one of those items that's holding her back in that previous life of hers. She would never be able to truly live that like free life because of her holding on to this. I agree with that. Do you have an interpretation of why she continues to hold on to that when she gets rid of everything else? So one of the things that the film doesn't really explore in great detail is the relationship between Julie and Patrice. We find out that Patrice was having an affair and he had a mistress. There's definitely feelings between Julie and Olivier. I think that there's an implication of challenges within that relationship. And there's something else that the film does that it's, I don't want to call it a blink and you miss it moment, but if you look at the pictures that reveals to Julie that Patrice was having this affair, 
the pictures with Patrice and Julie kind of have this chaotic look to them. There's like things that are out of focus. There's almost like a tenser nature to those photos. But the pictures with Patrice and Sandrine are calmer. So I think that there's things that are happening in the relationship that the film doesn't give us outright, but clues us into. So it is possible that it's easier for Julie to move on or compartmentalize her marriage and the loss of her husband versus the loss of her daughter, because we see more of Julie's reaction and response to the loss of her daughter when she finds the sucker that's wrapped in blue and, you know, Julia Pinoche takes a bite, but then the way that she eats it, there's like an aggressive, more feeling with the way that she eats that. With a lollipop, it's the silence of anger and pain. So her way to bite and to um, stay silent like that and not scream is a way to resist. And and I think that the, the noise actually of the lollipop it's more horrible than the, than 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 a scream in a way because there's so much resistance. Even when she encounters the blue mobile, like she goes to tear it down, and there's more emotions that are displayed regarding the daughter and the loss of the daughter versus when it comes to the husband. And this was kind of been a very long winded response to. A pretty simple question like why do i feel she holds on to the mobile i feel like the loss that she truly can't move on from and continues to haunt her is the loss of the daughter more so than the husband i think it's representative of that memory of her daughter that you know she tries to clear it out and she can't because there's still something remaining she tries to destroy it she can't you know it, it remains so It is just that baggage that she's going to continue to have to carry with her. And, you know, and it's certainly not like clean and pat and sort of everything makes sense. But in a way, after the completion of the composition, I don't want to say she's completely done with her husband or she's completely processed and grieved his loss. But there certainly is an element of like there's progress there in that process and grief. But then I think about the final shot of the film and there's that moment where we're just holding on Julie's face shot through the window and Julie's crying. And then that reflection comes in and it has this blue tint to it. The return of blue in that moment to me signals that it's the loss of her daughter that is going to be the biggest struggle. It's the thing that still sticks with her. The blue, again, in my interpretation, representing memories of her daughter. I mean, it goes to support a lot of what you're saying is that it is easier for her to process the husband's loss and not as easy to process the loss of her daughter because that's the thing that's going to be the struggle and the journey that continues after the credits roll. One of your uh, favorite things to say on this podcast when talking about editing is is scene-to-scene editing. So I'm going to kind of borrow something from you here, and I'm going to kind of refer to this as the scene-to-scene 
emotions of Julie. And it's something that I really want to highlight as something that the film does really well. There's from one scene to the next, you can see a wide range of emotions on display from Julie. So, and I think that it also kind of ties into how the story unfolds. A few examples of what I mean by this is we see Julie getting the cat. She has a mouse with babies in the apartment. Julie gets the cat. We see her kind of being not necessarily having much emotion in regards to this. She's kind of approaches it matter-of-factly. In the next scene, there's an interaction with Julie and Lucille at the poolside, and there's more emotion from Julie at this point where she is a a little bit worked up. It's positioned as the mess that the cat would make. On the surface level, that's what we're being told. But in the context of the film, sending in the cat to basically kill the mother and the babies, it's almost a level of guilt. Lucille offers to go and clean up the mess and take care of it. Lucille goes to leave and... There's this like chaos of all of these children running and uh, jump into the swimming pool that Julie's in. And you just see the breakdown of Julie. So that's one example of this, but you can kind of just see a wide range of emotions as we go from one scene to how it cuts to the next. There's other examples of this. When Julie's eating the candy, she kind of takes a bite of it very slowly, but then like really starts to kind of get aggressive. And then she calls Olivier. And there's almost like this sadness, this loneliness, talking about how they took everything away, only the mattresses left. Julian Olivier are intimate. And then the next morning, she's a bit cold to Olivier, you know, referencing how she's like any other woman. And then following that scene, even, we have her walking away. We change from that very, like, quote unquote, cold, a little bit more stoic, to that emotional breakdown, Aunt Julie running her hand up against the stone wall. I don't mean to transition us into, like, the technical side of things, and I can't really talk about this scene-by-scene emotion without kind of referencing the decisions made in the edit here. Going from one scene to the next, we're seeing basically Julie's emotional struggles. I don't necessarily want to call it a journey because it's not consistent. I mean, it, it changes. You know, there's ups and downs, but we see it on full display here. In a traditional, we have to see our character grow, evolve, there's ultimately redemption at the end of the story, you would maybe expect gradually her to just continuously process, get better. She's going to you know, start out very sad and, and emotional, and, and over the course of time, she's going to learn to move on with her life. You'd see her go from her lowest to a version of normal. And what we get here is maybe a more in my eyes, a more realistic representation of the grieving process, even though she's in a way resisting that grieving process. It's like you have good days, you have bad days, you have good moments, you have bad moments. It's not like you're always 
sad, that sort of roller coaster of emotions. But then also there's this element of her trying to reject these things. And then when they come popping back up, evidence that she can't truly be free of them. I think that's, in my eyes, a realistic representation of of that journey is that it's not going to be a straight line upward. There's going to be peaks and valleys and ups and downs. And to that point, I think the more traditional narrative filmmaking way of doing this is we actually just see the seven stages of grief and they're all given 10 minutes. And by the end, Julie's like, you know, maybe with Olivier and all is right in the world. I do question if that's part of the negative criticism of this, is it, it doesn't fit the Hollywoodization or the traditional filmmaking narrative depiction of grief and how it's displayed in a film. Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's also like this expectation of how people are supposed to grieve. And if I even want to go a little deeper, I think there's like this expectation on how women are supposed to grieve. This idea that she needs to be crying for the loss of her daughter because she is the caring, nurturing mother. And that's the only way a mother would respond to the loss of her daughter. I think it's conditioned based on what people see in movies and expectations of women as well. Because again, I mean, also calling her cold. I mean, it just goes back to that, that she's cold and uncaring. Well, I would say I don't see any of that in the film myself. So it has to be a response to, I expect her to behave a certain way and she's not behaving that way. You know, you you touch on Julie being like the perception, Julie is cold and uncaring and, and heartless and everything like that. I think that this is a way that people deal with trauma and emotion and what i feel like some of these people like reacting oh she's she's cold she's heartless whatever i think what people are really saying is i can't relate because this isn't how my emotions are or how i would react in this situation additionally the film isn't giving you the conventional response to death but let's be honest, this is absolutely a way that people grieve. And just because it's not captured in the traditional sense or it's not this overt grief process, that doesn't make this wrong and this doesn't make this individual any less. It's it's just a different way of compartmentalizing and going through what she's going through. Overall, as a whole, I don't I don't think she's cold at all. I look at this film and I think that what we have is a depiction of somebody who is actually going through a grieving process. I think you said it, but I think that the film executes that incredibly well. Kislavsky didn't want to go into emotions, you know, he wanted me to stay more inside as if, you know, she's cut out, cut off from her emotions. So for me, that was the hardest part somehow, because uh, my tendency would have been, you know, more to express more of uh, the loss. And he said, well, what I'm interested in is to film your intimacy. And it has so much resonance, uh, that word, because uh, it meant everything. I think what's interesting about the relationship with Olivier is it's clear she doesn't want 
a relationship and what she's getting from him is whatever you want to interpret it as it's not spelled out you know whether it's about punishment whether it's about feeling something as a distraction you know feeling anything at all i mean in a typical movie these things would be expressed through dialogue and and we just don't get any real explanation which i like but also i mean i think i've seen this feeling that this film is trying to be about or at least there's an element like a subplot that is about the relationship between Julie and Olivia. And I just don't think that that's ever what this film is about. It's not a, a romance. The traditional narrative films, and especially American films, there is this, I think, insistence on we need the romantic subplot. If there's a single man and a single woman in a film, it's like these two are going to get together at the end. And that's the expectation. It's almost shoehorned into every film. I've seen some people maybe viewing this element of the story as that, and it's just obviously not. Um, and that resistance to do that, I mean, that's probably came naturally to the filmmakers. But by not doing that, you're revealing another element of Julie's process of grieving. She's using sex with Olivier as part of that grieving process or part of that way to distract herself from feeling anything or, or grieving. I agree with you from Julie's perspective. I'll also mostly agree that the film isn't about this love. Where I think I would maybe differ is I actually do see Olivier's actions as coming from a place of caring, compassion, and love. You know, we, we see him go to her, you know, when she's in the hospital. He comes and he brings her the television to watch the funeral. Then when she's out of the hospital, he comes to her again with the bundle of pictures. You know, it's, it's later revealed that Basically, he knew that the pictures were there, and he knew about the affair. So I think in his way, he was doing this as a way of trying to help her move on from from the loss. When he goes to her after she calls him, I think that is done partially out of love. He finds her at the cafe. Even in that interaction, he's basically like, this will do for now. It's just glad that he was able to have that. I even think that his actions as far as trying to finish the composition, it's almost a way of like pulling her out of hiding and trying to get her to re-engage with the rest of the world. I think that his motivation is coming from a place of caring and potentially love. Well, I don't necessarily disagree with that. It's not what the story is because the story is so much from her perspective and it's about what she's experiencing, what she's feeling. Now, I do want to talk about perspective in a little bit, but he may be feeling these things towards her, but if she's not and the story is being told from her perspective, then the film is saying that this relationship doesn't matter or this isn't a relationship that's going to happen. The thing that I would say that pulls Julie out of this attempted isolation is Olivier himself and Olivier's actions. So I think he's a small part of it. But I think she's slowly being worn down with everybody she interacts with. Clearly, we don't know because we can only speak to what happened in the film. But if she doesn't see the news broadcast where Olivier discloses that he is trying to 
work on this and the pictures with the mistress come up i think that she continues her isolation and clearly we don't know even with like the little things breaking her down i think that the thing that really just grabs her is that situation yeah i mean i i can't dismiss the importance of that to her ultimate decision and her ultimate destination but the reason she sees that television broadcast is because she's already starting to come out of this she gets a call from lucille And Lucille says, I need you, come to the club or whatever. And she goes, which she did not need to. And I think if she was truly isolating herself, she wouldn't have. And then when she gets there and they talk, I think there's a moment where she begins to take interest in who Lucille is. Lucille tells her the story about her father being at the club. And at a certain moment, Julie's like, why do you do this? I think her asking that question is taking interest in Lucille. And her taking interest in Lucille is her beginning to form a connection and rejecting that isolation to a certain degree. And so I can't reject the power that uh, Olivier has. But I think it was already happening before that. And so I'm under the belief that it would have happened eventually. Counterpoint to that, I would question, is she doing it because she's being broken down? Or is she doing it out of this feeling of being indebted to Lucille because Lucille had helped her? So, well, I, well, (laughs) yeah, but aren't Lucille and Julie even if you want to really view it this way, when Lucille cleans up the mice for Julie, because Julie's the person who did something nice for Lucille first, not that she did it out of obligation to be nice. She did it to just keep to herself, but it was still the thing that allowed Lucille to stay there. So Lucille was indebted to Julie first. Just briefly, I wanted to highlight the fact that, and this is something I think we've somewhat hinted at throughout this discussion, Kieślowski's insistence on keeping this film from being melodramatic and sort of big and emotional, and it's very sort of subtle and subdued in its approach to handling this subject. I think in general, it's a very quiet film. That was the film, not to talk and, you know, uh, speaking with silences because she retreats from life and she wants to, and she's resisting, you know, life somehow. Juliette Binoche's performance is very internal. There's not a lot of external expression of emotion. Even something like the car accident, which is like this big moment, it's traumatizing, it's dramatic, but it happens off screen through sound. We're not even given the visual, we're kind of just given the aftermath of that. So in a way, he's refusing to show the big dramatic events. Even Julie crying at the end, it's two tears running down her face. It's not this big sobbing moment. It's very, uh, for lack of a better word, stoic approach to crying. This is, I think, very beneficial to the film. I also think it's directly tied to the fact that the film is from Julie's perspective. Julie is someone who is trying to repress these feelings and reject these feelings and not just not have these emotions. And so the film is expressing the same thing. If she's refusing to break down, if she's refusing to cry, 
then the film is going to be really kind of restrained in its expression of those emotions as well. The two things that I think are sort of really expressive or really kind of bombastic are the impressionistic use of the blue light and the very loud score. There's an intentional sort of counterpoint to the very quiet film is these very sort of expressive loud elements because I think they're at odds with each other but what the blue light at least for me and, and the music represent is at odds with what Julie's attempting to do. So I mean like she's attempting to feel nothing and so when these feelings come come out they're at odds with that. So when these big loud expressive uses of sound and, and visuals come out it's at odds with the very subtle restrained filmmaking. More than anything I think the lack of melodrama I think speaks to me. I don't think I would have necessarily wanted to see that. I think I liked the more quiet representation of someone struggling with this loss and this grief. The idea that there's not a lot of emotion or we don't see a lot of emotion from Julie, I, that's just an area that I don't fully agree with. I think that we see a lot of emotion from her, but I think it's just... No, but, you know, to your point and what you're saying here, it's just done in such a reserved way that the performance from Binoche is so focused on subtle body language elements, you know, facial expressions, certain looks. There's one of the scenes in the swimming pool where she goes to get out of the pool and she's like about to push herself up. But I think that's a moment where like the music and the blue light kick in. And she just holds there for just a second or two. And then she like goes back into the pool and kind of curls up into a ball in, in the water. There was one moment when I'm just about to get out of the water and then listen to the music. For me, because water has to do with going back to first step, you know, babies and, and all that. So I, I said, and why don't I do? And I just did it. I did, you know, what's in the movie, which is to come back as a fetus. And he loved that, and we stayed with that idea. That may be one of the most performative scenes in the entire film. What I love about it isn't even so much like her bawling herself up and like kind of sinking into the water. It's that moment where she's about to get out. I think there's so much emotion there. Even just a close-up of Juliette Binoche, I think you see all of the emotion on her face. That's what makes that performance so masterful. It's just not expressed in the traditional showy acting school that we're maybe used to, and it's maybe not expressed in the way that we expect. Her performance is showing all that emotion. It's just not on the surface the way we would traditionally think. For people interested in acting, whether you like this film or not, Benoche's performance is something to be studied, and a lot can be learned from it. If you want like an acting school without actually going to an acting school, I think the film and the commentary together is like amazing. But yes, we'll get to that. Yeah, let's talk about perspective for a moment. I think I want to get into this when we get to the technical a little bit from a just a storytelling perspective the way this film just sort of like fully immerses you in julie's point of view 
And I kind of talked about like her lack of emotion then translates to the film's lack of emotional representation in the filmmaking, that sort of connection there. But I do think Kishlowski is a master of perspective and using that to get the most out of a, a story. And if there was a lot of things in this film that weren't from Julie's perspective, Julie's journey would be less impactful, less powerful. The car crash is not from Julie's perspective, which is appropriate, I think. But from the moment after that crash, where she wakes up in the hospital, where we get a very subjective camera angle we're basically in the eyes of julie with the feather um from that point on we are kind of in her perspective for the entire film yes except there are two scenes with olivier and the scenes are him at the house he grabs the folder of documents sheet music the photos and he takes them with him and then sort of a continuation of that is he's in the car and he opens up the folder and we get another look at the photos and then a moment later in the film where olivier receives a delivery to his house he opens it and it's the copy of the sheet music that was sent to him i'm trying to think of like what is the point of these scenes that break the julie subjective point of view the only thing I can think of is that they're communicating information to the audience before Julie is aware of that. So the audience is aware of things before Julie is aware of things. So in the first example, the audience is aware of the affair before Julie. And then the second example, the audience is aware that there is a second copy of the sheet music and that Olivier is going to continue working on it before this is revealed to Julie. I do feel like it's a little strange because I don't know why we as the audience would need to know that information before Julie. I think we could learn that information with Julie and that would be just as effective. I know we've talked about perspective on this podcast before, films that seem to randomly break perspective and how it bothers me. And it does sort of bother me here. That's why I'm bringing it up. But ultimately, it's not that big of a deal. You don't have to convince me that this movie's good because of this or despite this, but do you have any feelings on this? I get where you're coming from. You're right. And I'm not going to argue that change of perspective. I, I think that that is, honestly, I, I think I actually have a, a bigger challenge with it early in the film, him getting the folder with the pictures and everything. I kind of forget about the scene where he actually gets the sheet music. It's a throwaway scene to me. I, I get where you're coming from. And yeah, I mean, like with that example, we see the scene in which she sees the report on the television where she's informed of it. We could be informed of it at that moment as well. And then she goes to the woman who made the copy and she's like, you gave me this. And she's like, I made a copy, which is a scene that happens in the film. So it just feels like in a way it's redundant information for the audience. And also strange that Kishlowski, who I believe is a master of perspective, both technically and storytelling wise, would make that decision. Let me ask this question. And, and I have my interpretation of it, but I'm, I'm curious about, since you're bringing up the perspective, uh, towards the end of the film, there's a sex scene involving Julie and Olivier. What follows these shots of the people that she's interacted with? On one hand, you can argue that that is outside of Julie's perspective, but you didn't bring it up. And I, I think I know why, but I want to hear you talk about it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's essentially a like a montage of a series of people that she's interacted with throughout the film. And yeah, technically, it's outside of her perspective. She wouldn't be knowing what these people are doing. But it's, I think, a moment in which the film is revealing a connection between all of these people. It's a moment where they're all existing in the same moment in time, and they're photographed in a similar way. The film is telling us that Julie, who has now come to terms with the fact that human relationships are either something she wants or are something that are unavoidable, that she's now made a connection with these people. And also that I think in a way, and this goes maybe a little bit more to her perspective, is I think it's revealing in a way that these people are now part of her, that she's incorporated their existence into herself, into her life, in a way that makes it part of her perspective. But also, I mean, that one feels story-driven, thematically driven, where the other two examples maybe feel more like, not that there's a plot necessarily to this film, but they feel like more plot points, like plot-driven in a way, where it's revealing necessary plot information to the audience. So that's what I was expecting from you. I also think that, again, I'm going to dip my toes into technique because we're almost there. I also think that there's another thing being communicated. Basically, there's like left to right camera movement, cut to black as we transition between those characters. With that camera movement, it's also communicating this life moving forward that maybe we didn't necessarily see earlier in the film with the way that Julie was kind of not necessarily stuck, but didn't necessarily feel like she was truly like living a life and moving forward in, in time. The way that that's shot is, is also communicating another aspect of this. I think maybe there's a belief that Julie changes rather quickly. This change happens kind of out of nowhere or quickly. And I don't see it that way because I see it as something that's slowly being built to over the course of the film. I've already talked about the moments where she needs help from people, then also where she goes to Lucille when she needs help. And, you know, obviously everything with Olivier and also with the mistress, Sandrine. And then there's just moments throughout. I mean, I think there's the moment where the street musician says to Julie something like, uh, you have to hold on to something. And then her mom says to her, you can't give up everything. And it's these lines that both characters are referencing something else, something within the scene, you know, whether it be his recorder, her mom, it's money, but they're almost like lines that pierce through that initial meaning and kind of mean something to Julie. And it's almost like these people are guiding Julie, speaking to Julie in a way that is actually starting to affect her. And it's just all these little things, one thing building upon the next, until I think that ultimate realization that Julie has is inevitable. Do you have thoughts on that? I guess I, I kind of want to start going back to something I, I talked about earlier regarding Julie's grief and maybe the question of who is she grieving over the course of the film and with some of the hints regarding Julie's relationship with Patrice and their marriage, I kind of tend to look at the bigger impact of her grief as the loss of her daughter. Not to discredit the grief of her losing her husband, but again, I, I think the film drops subtle hints about that relationship and why it might be a touch easier for her to move on from that. If that's the case, then I 
feel like she does work through, at the very least, any lingering emotional impacts of Patrice. His loss may not be as impactful to her, possibly. Again, this is just one way to look at it. If his loss wasn't as impactful and the focus here is her moving on, at least from that grief, I think it becomes considerably more digestible that this is where she would be because she's overcome this grief. She's signed over the house to his mistress and his son. She's working on or has completed the music, the the composition. She has found a relationship with Olivier. It does feel earned because I think if we look at it from the views of, at the very least, moving on from Patrice's death, yes, this makes absolute sense. I don't know what else stands out to you about the end. I mean, we already did talk about the montage of people that have made a connection with Julie. The other very sort of abstract, impressionistic element of the end is the sex scene with Olivier and how that is represented. Do you have thoughts on that and what that means? I assume that you're referencing the fact that it's kind of shot like outside a window and she's like pressed up against the glass. She's pressed up against glass. It's almost like they're on display in some sort of aquarium. But also I've always thought that they were underground because as the camera tracks upward, you see stuff above them that looks like roots and grass to me. Obviously, we're looking in on them and she's pressed against the glass and glass is very prominent throughout the film, but then also like she's underground. On the Criterion Blu-ray, one of the special features was on blue. There is a discussion on the use of reflective surfaces and it talks about windows and glass being also used to separate Julie from others, almost acting as like a barrier. And this was something I would kind of wanted to bring up during the technical because I think that this is actually something we made it almost a whole episode, Justin, but here it is. We both appreciate that about like Edward Yang films. But the way that it's used here, it's actually, it serves a purpose as kind of being that buffer for Julie. What I kind of read into the the sex scene pressed up against the glass, the, the fact that her and Olivier are having this intimate moment pressed up against glass, it is this nature of she still has this means to separate herself from others, but she's also now let him in. Now she is more open to accepting people into her world again. So you think that her and Olivier will continue some sort of relationship? Yeah. This isn't another kind of one-night thing. I think that there's enough evidence there to indicate that this isn't another situation where she leaves him tea and says goodbye. I'll be honest with you. I've never really been able to make sense of the scene in a way that was satisfying to me. That's not a critique. That's just, you know, I haven't discovered what that is yet. But I remember the first time I saw this and every time I've seen it since, I still stand by that I feel like they're 
underground because of the way it's represented. And now what does that represent? Uh, certainly it could represent death. It certainly could represent her accepting the death of Patrice and her daughter. It could be the death of this life that she's tried to create for herself that is now completely abandoned because it's just not possible or it's not what she wants. In the end, the, the one thing that kind of sticks with me is that if we bring this conversation back around to liberty and whether Julie is free, it's this interesting thing where is she not free at the end in a sense where she accepts memories, she accepts human connections, but you have to give up a certain level of freedom to have those things, but it's worth it. It's worth the sacrifice. Or is it a situation in which she actually is free in a sense that by coming to that realization, by accepting reality, she is now free of this false reality she's been trying to force upon herself. Like this idea that the truth will set you free kind of thing. Well, now she has accepted reality. She's accepted the consequences of reality by accepting that, by embracing that. Does that inherently make her free? Ultimately, that's not really what speaks to me about the film. Julie's journey with grief speaks to me more rather than this idea of freedom. But I think it's an interesting question to kind of end on and the film leaving it up to the viewer to decide for themselves. So I guess it does kind of open up my interpretation of that final shot where Julie has the tears, but it ends with her kind of like doing that like half smile. And I think honestly, it's Julie's realization that this liberty, this freedom is is actually a fallacy. And even though she tried to live this life of freedom, it was unsustainable. And that moment is like that realization and kind of that acceptance of this is an ideology and, and not a factual thing that we can obtain. I'm surprised that we went this long before we actually talked about the fades in and out. Clearly, when it comes to filmmaking, fade-outs and fade-ins are generally used to convey a, a passage of, of time. According to Kozlowski, quote, At a certain moment, time really does pass for Julie, while at the same time it stands still. Not only does her music come back to haunt her at a certain point, but time stands still for a moment. I wanted to, I guess, start by asking like your thoughts in regards to the fade-out and fade in kind of paired with the music and the color that we've already talked about. I think it makes sense the way Kishlowski describes it, but I think it can be more than that too. I mean, there's something about when it happens, most of the time when it happens, it is this moment where you could easily see there being a great deal of pain and Julie struggling to push that down or, or reject it or repress it. You could easily think of it as like a, and these are maybe opposing ideas, but as a way to heighten or emphasize Julie's pain, sort of like a punctuation mark, sort of at the end of this moment, or this moment where Julie is unable to take it. And as a result, you know, the film, which is told strictly from her perspective, therefore can't take it either. And it's almost like separating itself from that pain or trying to get away from that pain. And you can also think of it as like a blackout or something from Julie's perspective, if you really wanted to. I think it's one of those things where I, you could look at it many different ways. But at the same time, regardless of how I look at it, I just like the boldness of it, the 
experimental nature of it, how willing Kishlowski and editor Jack Vita were to just try something kind of really strange and out there. Do you have your interpretation of it? And also, I'm curious, do you like it? Yeah, it works for me, absolutely. I read it in the more traditional sense regarding time passage. Your insight actually kind of gives me something else to think about. But the reason why I kind of focus on it as a time passage element with grief at the core of the film, I find this kind of relatable. We don't always have a sense of time when we're grieving. Additionally, like when memories kind of come back to us, we kind of get stuck in those moments. And while we're stuck in those memories and those emotions, we're there for what feels like X amount of time. But in reality, nothing's changed and no time has passed at all. But to us, it feels it feels forever. That's my interpretation of it. Again, probably the more traditional way of looking at it. I think that you use a good term when you refer to it as bold, because yeah, this isn't something that you see a film do where you're going to fade to black and then come back and you're essentially in that same shot. It's a very interesting decision that I really like. He just told me once, editing for me is discovering the soul of the movie again. Kishlowski does play with rhythm and he does choose his moments to hold on a shot, linger on a shot for longer than maybe is expected. That being said, like this technique is so different than everything else. It does stand out as kind of like the only editing technique that is experimental in a way that I can think of at least. Maybe I'm forgetting something, but I mean, he is certainly experimenting with visuals but in terms of editing techniques this is kind of the one and only experimental technique i can think of do you have anything else from an editing perspective there are moments in which kishlowski plays with rhythm and, and pace and i mean you can think of a film moving at a relatively quick pace you know there's not necessarily a lot happening in terms of events but the film is 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 cutting at a consistent pace and then he'll just slow down. I think of the moment where Julie comes back to the house after the accident, after she leaves the hospital. And, you know, she's interacting with the, the, the people who've been taking care of the house, who work for them. And then there's that moment where she sits down on the stairs. It's right before she has her first interaction at the house with Olivier. And they just hold on like a close-up of Julie for over a minute. So what's striking is that he's willing to bring the film to a stop, in a sense, to just spend time with the character. He certainly photographs her lovingly, and he it's understandable, you know, like wanting just to spend time with her. I think her performance is amazing. I don't necessarily think this is a slow film rhythmically, and then the film will just kind of come to a stop in a way. I think you get a lot from a character when you just spend time with a character accompanied with a great performance. You get, I think, a little bit of a clearer sense of who she is and what she's going through in this moment, even though nothing's really happening. I think the one thing that I'd call out, and it kind of goes back to what you were just touching on, is I think the belief or the way that some people look at editing is 
cutting and when to cut. And I think that there's just a lot of instances here where the camera like pans or there's some sort of camera movement. And rather than cutting, we're just letting the scenes play out with the camera movement versus instinctively cut, go to another setup. And I think that that, to me, works to the film's advantage because you're able to like sit in those moments longer and just kind of be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, there are some moments where this is achieved through camera movement, but, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but the film overall, you know, Julie is shot a lot of the time in singles. So there is a lot of cutting because we're sort of alternating between alternating singles and this idea of creating a disconnect between her and whoever she's talking to by not necessarily photographing them in the same frame but cutting from one single to another single so there is a good amount of cutting in the film but again i mean he's using contrast really well too you know if you're cutting back and forth between alternating singles when you hold or linger the contrast between what was the norm or the pattern and this new sort of longer shot, it just heightens sort of the the impact of that. I'll just go off that real quick. Broadly speaking, the visual language of the film is using techniques to create disconnect and also using techniques to put us into Julie's perspective. So I talked about like the shot, reverse shot, single, reverse single, creating a disconnect between these characters as she's trying to isolate herself from these characters. The example I think of when this is handled through camera movement is that conversation with Lucille at the club where it's panning back and forth between the two of them as they have a conversation, framing them in profile singles or three-fourths profile singles, panning back and forth as they talk rather than cutting. But that's a moment where we're framing them in singles because there is still like this disconnect But then at that moment where Julie's like, Lucille, why do you do this? Which I interpret as this moment in which she's taking an interest in Lucille. They both lean forward into a two shot. So they come together in the frame at a moment where they're coming together as characters. The other technique is just following Julie. So just following her as she walks, extreme close up of the back of her head and her neck as she's walking places. And this is, I think, just to put us into her perspective. The example I think of is when she's entering her daughter's room for the first time after the accident, and we walk in with her. So we're not seeing the empty room before her, we're not seeing the empty room after her, we're seeing it at the same time as her, and we're experiencing it with her, we're experiencing it through her eyes. And that's a technique that's used frequently. And there's a heavy use of close-ups as well. You talked about that two-shot between Lucille and Julie where they both kind of lean in. And I, I know we're talking about like the shot composition, but something I liked in that shot that if you think about it logically, it doesn't make a ton of sense. But as they both lean in in that two-shot, you have Lucille on the left-hand side of the frame, Julie on the right, and Lucille is kind of bathed in this red light. And logically speaking, you would expect there to be like some spill and like that red would kind of be over Julie as well. But they cut that red and Julie is just kind of more of a natural light that lights up her face. And she kind of just like gradually drops into darkness. So from a logical standpoint, it may not make the most sense because in an environment like that, that red would be on Julie, but it's very motivated. And it's all about communication. And, you know, the composition of that is great. The way that the lighting is said is communicating things about these characters in that moment, too. 
those are the techniques that are used broadly to mostly put us in Julie's perspective, but also to create a disconnect versus connection. In terms of close-ups, I mean, it is a film in which there are a lot of close-ups, and I've been critical on this podcast of a film that uses way too many close-ups. I tend to say close-up is a powerful tool that should be used sparingly or used at the most opportune time for the maximum impact and don't overuse it. And here's a film that uses that technique quite frequently. So really, I mean, I think the close-up puts you in Julie's perspective. And what Kishlowski does is that he creates that, that contrast through like wide shots or long shots, something that is, I guess, just like the inverse. And that works just as well. If you're shooting your entire film in close-ups, then the moment where you cut to a wide shot becomes significant or change in the editing rhythm or something. I mean, he's going about it in a different way, approaching it differently. He's still using that same technique of change, essentially, to create meaning. And the close-ups are really effective at putting us into Julie's perspective. I think the moments really kind of stand out with some of the inserts that are used. I think early on, the close-ups on the little like TV screen that Olivier brings to her, even just kind of that like opening shot after the accident of the feather uh, kind of swaying. In those moments, you're seeing the world through Julie's eyes, and I, I think that's so effective. You know, when I talk about Kishlowski being sort of a master of perspective on a technical level. I think that opening after the crash, the opening at the hospital is the prime example of that. I mean, the first shot is the feather on her bed as the doctor's approaching. And then, you know, obviously the reflection in the eye, which isn't literally subjective, but feels subjective. And I think of the moment where Olivier enters, he's out of focus because she's just like sort of opened her eyes. But then there's also the corner of her white sheet that is in the foreground obscuring the right corner. So it's just those little details of like the elements that obscure view and, and sometimes it's a little subtle movement, but like whether it be the sheet that's in the foreground, whether it be a curtain covering part of the window when the nurse is checking on the broken window and Julie's hiding behind the door, just the way we see the door and the door frame. It's just like these obstructing elements just sort of perfectly put you in her eyes. And I think he's just so good at capturing that. Like you said, when Olivier has the portable TV and you see his hands and you see him open it. And there's filmmakers who I think have a reputation for being good at inserts. Fincher is famously considered the insert king, but Kishlowski masters a level of perspective, of subjectivity. And here's a, a great example of him mastering that. And there's a million examples in this film. It just goes on and on and on because it is a film so grounded in Julie's perspective, but that opening has a lot of great examples. So Justin, traditional filmmaking techniques indicate that you should keep your subjects in focus. There's a, a pretty interesting deviation from that in this film. Do you want to kind of talk about that? <laughs> No, I was hoping you'd have something to say about it. So the scene uh, in question, Julie and Olivier are working on completing the, the music composition, and it's this long, wide shot. The shot is basically set up on the other side of the room from where Julie and Olivier are. As the scene progresses, they're working on the music, and the focus is manipulated so that the entire shot goes out of focus and the shot is left 
out of focus for I would say a bit of time as like the music kind of intensifies as scene remains out of focus. You use the term bold when discussing the editing decision to cut to black. I, I think it's also a bold decision to shift focus and basically make everything out of focus. That's not something that you typically see. I, I'm not exactly sure what was trying to be communicated or conveyed to me in that moment, other than the music was what was important. Essentially, the music was the character that I'm supposed to be focused on in that time. I don't have a clear answer for this either, but I do think what you're saying is a possible way to view it, is like, as we de-emphasize the picture, the sound, in this case, the score, the music becomes more important. When you have no picture to look at, you're going to put greater importance on the music. The only other way I can kind of make sense of it is going back to this moment where Olivier calls Julie, says, I'm going to work on this myself. I want this to be truly mine. And it may be worse, as a result, but it will be mine. And I interpreted this element and and maybe the relationship between Patrice and Julie as another element leaning towards this idea of creative collaboration. I think you can maybe view this as a scene about creative collaboration as well. And this moment where they start to work together and they're both providing ideas and input. And as a result, the music is getting better. It becomes a blur of who is responsible, you know, who is the author of this piece or who is solely responsible for it or who's providing what contribution and what belongs to each person. It becomes like a, a blur of that and it's sort of unfocused and you can't necessarily interpret who provided what, it just becomes about the result of this collaborative experience or exercise. But again, I mean, it's not a film that is largely about that. So I don't know if that would necessarily be the the justification for such a bold decision. I tend to think that it is maybe more about emphasizing the soundscape in that moment, which is the music, which is largely important to the film, which is important to their relationship. It's taking the focus off the picture, putting the focus on the music. There's a few instances where I think that happens where the music becomes the focus. There's a few instances where you can see somebody's like finger kind of like following along the sheet music and that score kind of plays with that. In that moment, while we have the visual to complement the music, what we're truly focused on is that score. I mean, I think it's worth maybe noting about the score and the music in general that it was composed before shooting started. So in a lot of ways, you know, visuals were influenced by the music rather than the music being influenced by the visuals, which is maybe more traditional. I did want to read a quote from Subignev Presner who is the composer. He was also responsible for supervising the sound mix, and this was what he said, Kishlowski said to him. Give the highest priority to the dialogue, and also not let the music be covered up by sound effects. Not let sound effects kill the music. Because in film, as in music, the most important thing is silence. You have to know how to play the silence. This is more about a, just the sound in general. I think it's interesting that and he talks about this a little bit, about sort of stripping away sound effects to make room for the score, and that the score and the music should be more important 
than the sound of the environment or, you know, the sound effects happening in the scene. And again, you know, making dialogue important is interesting too, because there's not necessarily a lot of dialogue. I don't know if the dialogue is, you know, important in the way we would maybe traditionally think of dialogue being important. I don't know if a lot's being communicated with dialogue. A lot is being communicated with visuals. And I just wanted to real quick just mention a little sound design moment or touch that I liked. It's the moment where Julie picked up the sheet music to the concerto for the unification of Europe, and she immediately throws it in the garbage truck, and the garbage truck begins to crush it hearing the music and as it begins to kind of be crushed and ripped apart and destroyed you hear it sort of very subtly distort and change and then it kind of dies out I think it's a really interesting moment of sound design that's very tied to Julie's perspective in terms of the music that's in her head, but also tied to thematically what that music represents. But it's just a nice touch. Something that I didn't recall from when I had previously watched this movie is how often there was just really warm brighter light on Julie. I didn't remember that as ever like standing out to me. But clearly, the name of the film is Blue, so we're going to talk a little bit about Blue. One of the things from a technical standpoint that I, I love so much about this film is the way that it uses its color and the way that it... And it's all done very practically. It's a lot of use of blue gels and blue filters. And Slavomir Ijek, the DP on the film, having like these custom like filters made to kind of have the right shade and sharpness of the blues. When we talk about supplemental material, there's the reflections on blue and the DP kind of talks a little bit more about how they accomplish certain looks and the focus on getting everything in camera, shooting things practically. Christoph told me that he would like to have here a very strong uh, visual accent, like, for example, you know, all of a sudden artificial, theatrical blue light, you know, even using the strongest uh, possible lamp. I couldn't get enough to to get this, you know, uh, effect, you know, and finally, I decided to make something uh, very risky and unusual. I wrap the camera in the blue gel and I open the back gate simultaneously with the music. So simply we overexpose blue negative from inside, which was very hard to control. Miraculously, you know, the effect was incredibly good on the screen. I think that the only instance of like that really harsh blue lighting really being like prevalent without some sort of trigger or some sort of motivation would actually be the instances that Julie's in the pool. But one could argue that she's in the pool. That's kind of a, a space for her to be reflective anyways. One of the first drafts, Juliette Binoche she's alone, he wrote that uh, very often she went for jogging and as a cinematographer jogging seems to me not so attractive idea for the picture and i come up to him with the idea why not 
instead of jogging, letting her go to the for the swim, because the water, the swimming pool, was much more interesting background for me in terms of metaphor. You know, we have a surface of water, you have a life, and death. I think it's interesting how much white or tungsten orange light there is in the film because anytime you know you look at images of this film online or something or you think about the film you think about it being like all blue and it's really not that's exactly what i was thinking when i was like rewatching it i'm like it is more white and yellow orange than i recall it being and i do think it is beneficial to the film that it's not all blue i think it does put importance on the moments where that blue does really come out even like the pool like you said where it is very blue it, it gives more meaning to the pool because the whole film isn't like that it doesn't look like that it makes that stand out and gives that additional meaning there's a scene in this film that most people would not even care about it would just be kind of a throwaway thing to me it's a moment of i would say making your inserts count using your insert to convey information the moment i'm talking about julia's watching the street musician from the cafe but the camera is fixed on her coffee cup and we hold on this shot for a bit of time and what you see is as the camera's fixed on this coffee mug, you see the light change. There's just little pockets of light on the table, and they go from being like brighter, implying like early daytime, and the lighting changes to a more diffused version of it, kind of indicating like a, a late afternoon almost, basically not, not being completely without light, but another stop down. Nothing really moves in the frame we don't see like the coffee cup move we don't see anything like that all that shot is doing is just conveying a passage of time we talked earlier about fade outs and fade ins from the editing process communicating this i just found this interesting as another way to communicate that i just found this to be a very fascinating approach to it and for something so small I really loved this moment. And right now everybody's like, why the hell does Joe give a shit about, you know, this shot on a on a coffee cup? You should care. I mean, this is this is an element of an expertly directed film. These things don't just happen by accident. These things aren't just afterthoughts, especially in a film like this. There's a lot of thought put into these moments. And while, yes, the film would function without it, you know, it's also the thing that gives the film life and essentially is what films are built out of. It's just a lot of these types of moments. I think it makes sense to get excited about a, oh, just a perfectly executed shot. We can sort of shut this down and brush it off as it was just a joke in the moment, because I think it was a joke, or we could take this whole thing seriously. We had said during the Descent episode that we were going to compare the opening car crash of The Descent with the opening car crash of Three Colors Blue and discuss why one maybe works better than the other. And if you really have no interest in discussing it, then we'll just chalk it up to making a joke in the moment. Do you want to start this discussion off about which one works better and why? I think I was pretty clear that I had issues with the Descent execution, but I like it in blue. And I mean, you have to acknowledge that they're attempting to do very different things. The Descent is going for shock, 
you're not supposed to necessarily see it coming until the impact. And I think that maybe is because it is a horror film that the end goal is to shock you or, or scare you or whatever. That's maybe the goal of a horror film in general. And Blue tells you almost instantly that something's going to happen. So it's about building tension and anticipation. And it's like, we know it's going to happen, but the question is, when is it going to happen? And I think that's the main difference. And that's why, you know, one sort of works for me and one doesn't. But you also have to add that Kishlovsky with his camera and with his sound design... He's creating tension, but he's also creating this mood just through very tight shots on the wheel and, and then the, the reveal of the fluid leaking, but also just even the way we see the husband and the daughter when she goes out to use the bathroom, the way it kind of hides them and the way it, it establishes them, but it establishes them in a way that it's clear they aren't actually going to be characters in the film. And the take of the girl who is running to the bush. And Christoph told me, listen, let her go out. Don't pan her to the bush. Let her go out and without any reason, pan back to the car and to the father. I didn't like the idea because I did try to put everything so organic, so camera and the way how the camera works, completely invisible. But finally, seeing, you know, film edited already, I learned that, you know, it was one of the most clever way of warning for audience. We used this technique several times later on, always in very important moments. It was always a kind of announcement, a kind of warning. Part of what my issue was with The Descent is it felt sloppy to me, I guess for lack of a better word. It just felt like it wasn't necessarily accomplishing what it was trying to accomplish. It felt forced. And then with Blue, it's a filmmaker who's in complete control of the moment and is, I think, uh, ahead of the viewer with how he's revealing information and when he's revealing information. There's two things that need to be looked at and addressed here. So, you know, I think we did say it jokingly, you know, during the Descent episode, but, you know, it's worth having the discussion about you hit on the big element with how it's used in the descent i mean the descent has a few jump scares and jump scare moments and i would say that that's one of them one could argue that really all that scene does is kind of provide a horror element or a horror setup moment Again, this is going to be like probably the only time anybody ever compares The Descent in Three Colors Blue, but you have two films that, oddly enough, are similar in an element of loss and a female lead main character dealing with a loss. Now, one of these films executes it incredibly well. The other film is The Descent also like the story is very similar both husbands are having an affair both kids are daughters it's just almost like it's too close to be a coincidence you're right there's several similarities here but i think that we were pretty critical of the descent during that episode even me who appreciates that film for the most part i guess just to kind of maybe try to like bring a more positive approach to this is for filmmakers i mean here you have two very different styles to a arguably traditional idea. A woman who is 
lost her husband and daughter. Going back to the original point of this discussion, the quote-unquote who wore it better regarding the car accident, and I think it's clear. like They're done in two very different ways trying to communicate two different things, because I, I think Blue is actually trying to tell you something, and the descent it's leaning on for a jump scare. And again, I, I think it goes down to the type of films that we're talking about and the style in which they're done, but Kislowski not showing the gore or the things that occurred in that car and leaning on more symbolic elements. I, I think that's just always my preferred method of how this unfolds. But again, for a horror film or you know something that would probably be in the more thriller genre, the way that Neil Marshall executes it makes sense. I mean, it does make sense in terms of embracing the gore, showing the blood, but you could easily see a version in which Neil Marshall attempted to wring some sort of tension out of it as well, because I do think he does that in other places in that film. Obviously, that was a choice that they made, but I mean, I, th I think it, it could have been done in a very similar way and it maybe would have fit. The only difference would have been they would have honed in on the aftermath a little bit more because it is a horror film. Even if they did something like a shot of the poles coming in and then just cut to black, the audience is smart enough to kind of understand what happens when she wakes up. And I think that there's probably something a little bit more traumatic to that cut to black. You're left with more of a sense of dread. Joe, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Regrettably, I'm going to say no, but here's why. We've been talking about this film for a bit. I feel like we've covered a fair amount of things, but when it comes to films like this, I always worry that are we truly doing the film justice when we talk about it, especially because it is a film that is so meaningful to me. It's a great film. I don't believe in a perfect film, but I feel like this is a near perfect film in my opinion. We're going to wrap up recording here and I'm going to be like, oh, I wish we talked about this. Or like, you know, in a week I'm going to be like, damn it, why didn't we bring up this? But that's the nature of it. And that's why we have a supplemental material that we can recommend to people, right? I would recommend... I think the Criterion set is pretty great. There are certain films, I think, where you just wish there was more included. Not that like this thing is like loaded or anything, but I just feel like, I don't know if you walk away thinking, oh, something was missed with this set. I think you get a, a pretty good full picture of these films through the supplements that are included on the Criterion. I would recommend reading the booklet which has the Kieślowski talking about the trilogy, which is from Kieślowski on Kieślowski. And I would recommend all of the supplements on the disc. I think the Juliet Binoche commentary is the thing that sticks out to me the most. We had talked about like this being sort of like a acting school in the form of a movie earlier. I think if you wanted to get a good sense of acting and, and what it means to be an actor and, and get a little bit more education on that, I think studying the film as well as this supplement, I think in combination with each other would be incredibly beneficial. Something that stood out to me that I really loved hearing was her talking about her relationship with Kislowski and talks about trust. I'm not going to give it away. I think people need to go and listen to and experience this commentary, but she talks about trust going beyond just nudity. What I liked about this was, you know, she gives an actor's perspective on filmmaking and she's not afraid to, in a loving way, kind of criticize Kislowski a little bit. And I think 
the moment where she talks about whether he's an actor's director is really interesting and compelling. I want to read just part of that. Juliette Binoche said, I don't think Christophe was really an actor's director. He was very clear about what he wanted to shoot, what he wanted to get on film, but he didn't know how to get the actor to do it. We did one take and he said, no, that's not it. So I tried something else and he said, that's it. And I asked why. He thought about it and he said, you swallowed that time. But an actor has to be able to use their imagination to refine their acting and take it in another direction. It comes from the imagination. If it's just a technical external change, it might work for one shot but not for an entire film. I, I just think that's really compelling. I mean, the fact that he was so focused on the technical and the visuals. And, you know, we have a long list of directors who fall into that list, I think. And a lot of them make good films. But I think despite the fact that Kieślowski is being characterized that way by a close friend and someone who's worked with him, yet he's still able to get really good performances, really compelling performances, really nuanced performances, and he's able to capture something intrinsic about the human experience, I think is unique. The fact that he can capture that while also not necessarily being the most gifted when it comes to working with actors, I think is actually quite unique. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more like that in that commentary. I honestly just wish it was longer. I could have actually watched the whole film with her, her insight. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? I did like some of the other features on there. On Blue, Reflections on Blue, and Kieslowski's Cinema Lesson. I found something in, in all of them. Kieslowski's Cinema Lesson. I mean, I, we just brushed over that. I don't think we'll get into a lot of detail here, but I just want to say there's one for each film on the set. This is really good stuff, too. If you're obviously if a filmmaker or you're just interested in how directors kind of come up with these things or you know the importance they put on these things or little elements and and how it all kind of comes together i think here's one that is quite informative any final takeaways regarding three colors blue i think it's a challenging film because it doesn't explain everything it leaves a lot of things open to interpretation but that's also what makes it really compelling and really exciting i connect with the film you know on a story level but also what just is so compelling to me about Kieślowski is his technical abilities and how he just does the unexpected, whether it be editing and, and rhythm, the inclusion of an unexpected surreal element or abstract element, and just how willing he is to embrace the unexpected and, and try something potentially experimental and something that could potentially be a failure. And I think... And get ready for this show. I think Kieślowski is kind of in a class with Yang in a way. He's a very skilled technical director, but he also has, apart from being a humanist, I think, they also have this special ability to be able to photograph something that's invisible, something almost sort of spiritual, a way of like capturing the, the human psyche of the human soul. And it's not something that is easily put into words, but I think both filmmakers have this ability to do this. And I think that's what makes them both very special filmmakers and not, they're not the only ones, but Yang is the one we always talk about. But I think Kieślowski has that ability and I think that's evident in this film. And I just wanted to read one more quote. It's a shorter one. This is from an essay he wrote called Reality in the Documentary Film. Kieślowski said, I put forward the argument that in everybody's life, there are stories and plots, 
So why invent plots if they exist in real life? You only have to film them. He said that in relation to documentary film, this is essentially what he was doing with his narrative films as well, is he was telling real stories about real people, and he was capturing an element of the human experience by kind of taking that approach and applying it to narrative filmmaking as well. Do you have any final thoughts or takeaways for Three Colors Blue? I feel like Blue is a film to be studied for filmmakers, regardless of what avenue you're looking at pursuing. I think from a visual standpoint and visual storytelling, there's so much here to study. And we've highlighted Benosha as a huge strength for this film. And any actor should look at and study her performance here. She does so much with so little dialogue, but you can feel that character coming through. never go behind a uh, little TV watching you. He was close to you because he was part of the scene somehow. Because he said, my video is my cinematographer. I don't want to look to the video. I would like to stand next, next to the camera. It is his job to control the picture, what we are getting. And I watch only actors. It's beyond language time, age, religions, experiences. It's about life and, um, you know, I started 10 years afterwards and it's, uh, it's a piece of, it's a piece of art. All right, Justin, we've kind of already revealed it. What's on the docket for our next episode? We will be discussing Krzysztof Kieślowski's Three Colors White. And I, I'm pulling for this one. I'm hoping that this ends up being my favorite of the three upon this rewatch. Wouldn't that be something? If it's going to happen for anybody, it's going to be you. I'm a contrarian by nature, I guess. Well, you kind of are. And that's why I'm, I'm surprised that white isn't your favorite in all seriousness i'm excited to revisit this i don't expect to come away with the same sort of connection as i did with blue and and what i at least used to with red but yeah i'm excited i'm actually just looking at this as kind of a pit stop on my way to red because you know i haven't seen red so really looking forward to that one but definitely want to thank our listeners for coming back or finding us for the first time after our hiatus. Definitely, you know, thank you for the patience. And also just overall, thank you for listening to our discussion on Three Colors Blue. 
Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with someone who might enjoy it. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at scenebyscenepodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow us on Letterboxd, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson, and Joe can be found at letterboxd.com slash jrlefebvre83. Links will be in the description. And join us next time for our discussion of Christoph Kieślowski's Three Colors White. You don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over. That's what you said. There's nothing going on in movies right now. Great movie, huh? So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for? Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm an active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? Still rolling. You know, oh. No, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. Cut and cut! That great work, everybody. That's a wrap.